very happy once again to be joined by Ben Varland, who's the uh, president of Warrigal RSL. Ben, thanks for your time. Um, quite obviously, uh, the recent uh, uh, interim report from the Royal Commission on Veteran Suicide has come out. Uh, what's been your immediate response? Uh, my, my immediate response was that uh, I was very pleased to see some of the recommendations that were made. Um, it's certainly on, it's going in the right direction in regards to some really good reform, I think, going forward for, for veterans. I really think that um, some of these recommendations, if they're um, dealt with promptly and appropriately by government, we'll see hopefully um, some suicides avoided. So perhaps uh, for those of us who haven't read the report, it might be useful to go through at least some of the recommendations. Yeah, I think um, at, at the outset, the, the most important thing here to sort out, and it's a massive area of angst for most veterans that are, that are going through the claims process with the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, is that there's separate sets of legislation for different um, times that you've served in, in the uh, military. So it is a confusing um, process. So the first recommendation is to simplify and harmonise veterans' compensation and rehabilitation legislation. So they've seen that issue and they've, um, you know, appropriately addressed it straight away, being the number one issue that they want to try and fix. So. Um, Again, that'll be a complex issue to deal with once it, it, it is, you know, it's obviously it's been tabled, but it will be a complex issue to deal with. But I think it's probably the most important one to deal with straight away um, because it, it it's that extra burden on that veteran when they're putting in those claims and going through that process, particularly when they're not well, if they've got a, a mental um, health injury, it's really hard for, for people to then um, be able to deal with that and then, you know, logically proceed through a claims process. So does this sort of thing arise uh, because uh, I guess a lot of these things have grown like topsy, you know, there's one bit of legislation to deal with one thing and then another bit of different bit of legislation to deal with a different thing and so they, they never quite kind of get connected up in any way? Yeah, look, I think from my understanding of it, and I've only got a really generalised sort of uh, understanding of how this legislation works, but it's different um, eras of, of service um, have different legislations that certainly apply to them. So um, a Vietnam veteran, uh, for example, would sit under a certain legislation. Someone that served in my era um, has got another different set of legislation to deal with as well. So it's um, it's just it's more of an era-based um, type of thing. It's not that the one legislation fits all, and it doesn't sort of roll into um, fitting all sort of people that have served. So the supports the support services that arise out of all of that is that also a bit patchy and inevitably if it's that patchy there's gaps for people to fall through absolutely and, and you know the the issue you, you're absolutely absolutely right in the way that you put it there paul i think one of the issues is because it is so complex we have to actually use advocates um, so we have people that are trained up in in this particular legislation that assist the veterans now that process, even in to have somebody trained up, is quite difficult because they, you might not get access to each of these these claims over a short period of time. So, um, to have access over those three different sets of legislation and those three different claims takes time. So, um, and they've got to obviously show that they can deal with that the separate legislation. So, even to train an advocate can take two to three years to get them up to speed so that they can then take on their own caseload. So, really problematic. Um, so 
does this come out of um, a sort of idea that we need to be so uh, prescriptive about it in case somebody uh, gets something that they're not strictly entitled to? Is, is that the kind of mental attitude that comes there? Yeah, frustratingly it is. And um, from the statistics, I don't have the statistics on hand, but I do know that it's upwards of 95% of the claims are accepted by Department of Veterans Affairs. So for me, sitting here as a, as a layperson, I, should, I think it should be the other way around. It should be an accepted claim until proven otherwise. It should be the other way around. The owner should be on disproving it if there's reason to suspect that it's not correct. Um, whereas it seems to be quite adversarial the other way where it's really hard for um, veterans to jump through the hoops. And that's also contributed to the backlog. You know, there's a massive, massive backlog in regards to these cases. Again, I don't have the, the full statistics, um, but I know in the recent government they, they um, applied for and got um, some funding through the previous uh, Minister for DVA and uh, he, you know, he sought that, that funding, got that funding to basically clear the backload. And I know that that is a recommendation in regards to, well, it's actually the second recommendation is to eliminate the, came, the claims backlog. So anyone that's in that waiting list, and I've got veterans here at, at Warrigal and, and surrounding areas that have been waiting for years for these, for these things to be processed. Well, their life's on hold over that period of time while the, the assessment is being done. So it exacerbates their condition, waiting and wondering, are they going to be looked after by the government that they served? Oh, quite so. And I would have thought that that was, uh, should have been fairly obvious, that a lot of these conditions, if, unless they get dealt with, they just simply get, get worse. It's not like you just sort of stay neutral. It, it just does make things worse. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt. It just it just adds fuel to the fire, doesn't it, really? So there has been some good things done in the past. The, um, DVA came out with a, a non-liability um, claim system. So people that are, are suffering mental health, there's an acceptance around that, that it's an accepted um, uh, condition that, that uh, veterans can um, actually get I suppose um, from their service so they it's an it's a uh, yeah it's an accepted liability um, and basically it's a situation that they can go and get that that treatment and that service that they need straight away which is a great thing um, but it's just the next sort of standard and, and working through the other other bits and pieces that makes it really hard on the veteran. Um, so I guess we've been through a couple of the top two uh, recommendations, but are there other others you'd like to highlight? And then we'll get on to maybe where you think there's gaps. Yeah, look, I think... Um, look, they, they talked about um, upping the staffing levels and things like that at Veterans Affairs, and, you know, that that's often been... You know, is it is it simply about the personnel power, I, su I suppose, so, so to speak? You know, have they got enough people doing the job? Well, it would probably say that it's a combination of both the legislation and the bureaucracy around the reports and, and why it is taking so long to determine them. Um, so I think personally it needs to be looked at in regards to that. And, and, I'm, and I'm really buoyed by the fact that, yep, they are looking at staffing levels. That's a good thing. But let's look at the legislation. Let's look at the bureaucracy around the reporting. You shouldn't have to have a fully trained advocate to assist you through this process. It should be a simplified process. And in my opinion, you should have somebody from DVA assisting with that, not not somebody from, you know, a, a veteran that's possibly, um, you know, ill themselves having to deal with this stuff. Because um, you've got that also that load of vicarious trauma on that veteran that's advocating for the veteran. So um, there's problems with that. 
Um, I like, I really like this recommendation uh, around, it's recommendation seven, which is providing exemption from parliamentary privilege. What that means to me, and, and um, this is my take on it, is basically it means that it allows people to speak freely and it allows those in parliament to actually be caused to answer questions when they're asked about them. Because at the end of the day, we're, as veterans, we're servants of the country. We're, you know, we're directly employed by the, the, uh, the federal government to do the job for them. So they should be the ones that answer the questions in regards to some of the failings of, um, you know, of our past years. And one of the standard things that uh, departments often do when they are questioned about things is, oh, we can't discuss individual cases. And mm. that seems to be, to me, as an outsider, a bit of a, a kind of an easy out. Do you feel that bit too? Complete cop-out. De-identify it, of course, to, to look after people's identities um, and privacy. But why not talk about the case? Why not? What's, what's the issue with that? Um, Particularly if the person involved in the case is the one who wants you to talk about it. They're consenting. Yeah, they're consenting. So I don't see where there's a privacy issue with regards to that. Um, but simply de-identifying it and taking some of those really, uh, those features that might be really succinctly identifying certain aspects of that person and their service, you take those out and you can still talk about it in general terms. Uh, it's really important. The, the, the lived experience from some of these veterans is, is horrendous to hear about. Um, you know, I've had veterans in this area that have spent their life savings um, in the interim before they've been picked up and got a pension um, as a result of their service. And these are people that have done decades of service. Their bodies are ruined from, um, you know, you can imagine being an infantry soldier carrying 40 kilos uh, on a pack um, and, and marching around with that on your back, that that's going to have an impact on all your joints in your body. Okay, so are there any outstanding areas that you think it's sort of it's been missed at this point? Oh, look, I I think there is a number of areas, and I'm I'm pretty confident with um, obviously with Nick Caldos being the commissioner, he is a an astute man, a very very good investigator, and he'll get to the bottom of all the the root causes and all the issues that are at play. I think for a very long time, with regards to particularly veteran suicide, is that it's not something that's been picked up by defence. It's not been uh, a factor that's been, that they've been interested in. So we need to capture all that data. We need to make sure that that data is captured from coronial inquiries where these, um, these veterans have suicided and see if there's any commonality and any, any contributing factors. For me, it's about transition. It's the lack of transition, um, the, the poor quality of transition for um, service personnel to, to transition back into civilian life. And, and for me, I want to really see that that, that that is looked at because I believe that'll be the root cause of these problems. And that, you know, that, that lends itself to other ex-service organisations and people being engaged with those ex-service organisations to aid and assist in that transition process. Um, yeah, the, 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 the they tell us, they tell us, um, data is everything. You know, so un unless you, you're collecting the data, you, you, you don't manage what you can't count, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting that up until the last census last year, we didn't even capture the data about um, if a person had served in the military. So it's interesting, and, and it's interesting what has happened since then. We can actually start to, to plan for our future and think about um, all the veterans that are in your particular area. And to, to speak about this area, um, I've only seen the very raw data, but we've only captured about 
you know, 15 to 20% of the veterans are members here at the RSL in the area. So, you know, this is, a, I suppose, a call out to any of those veterans that need any assistance, need fellowship, camaraderie, mateship, support, any of those things that we offer here at the RSL, um, certainly the Warrior RSL, we welcome them with open arms. Uh, there's an organisation that's grabbed that title too. Yeah. <laughs> of course we know. It's not a bad one, is it? No. Um, so... Uh, we, we talked uh, last time we talked actually we, we talked about the support group that you, you run here which goes uh, beyond just simply the uh, military service um, and talks to other uh, first responders um, now I know this is a, a sort of a bit of a stretch but um, uh, is there any data which indicates that similar kind of issues might be arising in some of those first responder populations oh, look I can't I, I don't have the statistics to to assist me but I can certainly give an uh, uh, um, words just, just um, escape me there but um, I can give a anecdotal that's what anecdotal response in regards to that and and just this week we've um, sadly lost a police member uh, current serving police member who's taken his life um, I've served with police officers who have taken their lives. It is an issue within Victoria Police. It is an issue with other agencies because of the traumas that they face. You know, and it, um, PTSD is a um, debilitating mental health injury that happens, and um, it ha it's a trauma base. So if you think about a normal person in in life, they might deal with a handful of um, of traumatic incidents in their life that are, you know, each and individually are hugely impactful on them. Um, if you think about somebody in the first responder um, area, you're dealing with maybe 500 or more um, traumatic incidents. So that, that cumulative effect is huge for first responders. Which leads us to point out that you have another of your uh, expos coming up and it is aimed at first responders generally. Yeah, indeed, Paul. And, and you know, that this is off the back of our Veterans Expo that we held in June, which was a great success. And um, we thought, well, uh, and certainly the, the key person that's that's behind doing this work um, certainly came to me with the proposition and said, well, what about the first responders? What's out there to assist them? And, and we, you know, intend to showcase exactly what is out there to support first responders of, of all types, whether they're full-time or volunteers, um, and show what support is out there for them. And uh, dates and all of yeah, that? Yeah, sec 2nd of October. Uh, at this stage, it will be held here at the uh, Warrigal RSL. Um, if we get too big, it might go somewhere else, but at this stage, it'll be here at the uh, Warrigal RSL, um, and we're hoping to have you know 15 to 20 different stall holders, um, some displays and some um, discussions towards the end of the day, some, some presentations, so it should be a great day. We'll pick that up uh, closer to the time as well to get more detail, but that's uh, 2nd of October at, the, at this stage, Warrigal RSL. Yeah, that's right, Paul. Put it in your diaries, I guess, is the message. There. Absolutely. Thanks again for your time, Ben. No worries. Thanks, Paul.